From the campuses of East Tennessee, State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. Hi, I'm John Shuck. I'm thrilled today to have as my guest the general manager of WETS, Wayne Winkler. He was featured in the December 2014 issue of Psychology Today. Uh, his photograph is on there, and we're going to talk about that, as well as his book, Walking Toward the Sunset, The Melungeons of Appalachia. Welcome, Wayne, to Religion for Life. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, it's neat to be on this side of the microphone with you. I've been on the other <laughs> side before. Yeah, well, we, we, we'll take turns. <laughs> there you go. That's awesome. Tell us about uh, this article. Why are you in psychology today? Well, it started actually uh, more than a year ago when I was contacted by Christine Keneally, who is a writer from Australia. Uh, she has written uh, a book on uh, linguistics, which is her specialty, but she's written about science and genetics and various other topics for uh, publications like The New Yorker, uh, New York Times, Slate, and uh, many, other, uh, many other publications. And she was uh, interviewing me about the Melungeons. And to be honest, I didn't really think much about it. I mm -hmm. talked to uh, writers quite frequently, and uh, so she had a lot of questions and uh, contacted me by telephone and by email, and I was uh, giving her pretty much uh, the same information I give to other writers, except she wanted to go into some depth, so, so we did, and then I forgot about it until a few months ago when she contacted me to tell me that uh, her book was coming out, and she wanted me to fact-check uh, the chapter that I was in, and then I realized, oh, okay, this is actually more of a big deal than I thought it was. Huh. And um, so I, uh, I looked over what she had written and uh, uh, realized that this would be a book coming out uh, in the fall of 2014, and okay, all well and good. I was waiting for that. And then I was contacted by one of the editors at Psychology Today, and they told me that they were going to be excerpting a chapter from Christine's book. Now, her book is called The Invisible History of the Human Race, How DNA and History Shape Our Identities and Our Future. And Psychology Today told me they were going to be excerpting a chapter from it, and the chapter was going to be chapter 13, which was the chapter that I was featured hmm. in. And... Uh, so they were very interested in, in that, and they wanted me to come up to New York for a photo session. Uh, at first, I was saying, well, you know, we've got photographers here. I'm not, uh, I'm not against a trip to New York, but uh, you know, we do have photographers here uh, who can do that. But what they were looking for was a, a group of photographs, all with the same background, all from the same photographer, uh, that would show people of mixed ethnic there, backgrounds. There are a number so, of people, number of photos in this uh, article. Right, and so um, you know, I went up to uh, New York uh, for a day hmm. and uh, spent a good little bit of time in, in a photo session. It was like when you see fashion models, except I was just sitting there, but he was asking for different expressions. You know, smile just a little bit, or, <laughs> or you know, uh, can you raise, raise your eyebrows a little bit, or, you know, just trying for different, different looks, and uh, it, it, was, it was a lot of fun, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I didn't really get to see uh, much of New York. I was in lower Manhattan, but uh, when it was time to go, 
Uh, I had to rush straight to Penn Station, <clears throat> catch the Long Island Railroad out to the airport because uh, it so was just for a day. Your trip to New York was just to get your picture taken. That was it. And yeah. They just couldn't take a selfie off the Facebook. Uh, of course, yeah. <laughs> but, but it is a good picture. It's I a mean, great uh, picture. There you uh, are. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, you can use that for. Uh, well, maybe I don't know if you can use it for other things. It but would be. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a good headshot. You know, if I were if I were an actor, that's what I would be using. But uh, I would I would have had to pay a lot for. Uh, a good quality photo like that, so uh, so the psychology my mom will be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So the psychology today angle is looking at how um, the DNA is written on your fa- or your past is written on your face. Yes, um, the article goes into and and it is an excerpt of the chapter from. Christine's book. It's not. Uh, there's more in the uh, book chapter than there is in the magazine, but uh, it's basically uh, an overview of the Melungeons, and then it goes into uh, some of the uh, DNA uh, and how uh, there are inherited traits uh, for mixed ethnic people, and uh, you know how these traits manifest themselves in one's physical appearance. So, uh, I think. Um, the Melungeons are an interesting group for that because uh, they're considered to be triracial, a, a mix of African, European, and Native American ancestry, and individuals uh, in the Melungeon population may manifest any or several of the traits that you associate with these different groups. So uh, it's it's a, an interesting topic. It's an interesting approach to the topic. It's one that uh, I hadn't really been involved in before, so... Uh, it was it was uh, an experience. So, did the author Christine Keneally find out about you because of your 2004 book, uh, "Walking Toward the Sunset: yes. The Lungeons of Appalachia"? I presume that's how she she learned of me. Uh, she certainly had read the book and and quotes from the book uh, in in her article in in her chapter. So, uh, that's that's another thing I was very happy about. You know, uh, you can write about me, but please mention my books. So, right. Uh, so that uh, <laughs> so that was another plus, but. Uh, she had read uh, read my book and read some other things about the Melungeons, uh, came to some conclusions based on on what she had read, and uh, it was uh, you know it was one one person's take on on the Melungeons who kind of came to the uh, the subject and delved into it a bit uh, as from a scientific viewpoint and and wrote her conclusions, and uh, it fits in with the other chapters in the book. Uh, she, she talks about, uh, well, as the title implies, how one's past, the genetic past and cultural past and so on, uh, affect who we are today. And so uh, when I have read through these different chapters, there, there are different people who have, uh, from different cultures, whose, whose past, whose traditions affect who they are today. Another person had a mother who had Huntington's disease, which is uh, a devastating hereditary disease. And, you know, at the end of the chapter, you find out that he also tested positive for the gene, hasn't uh, actually manifested symptoms of it yet, but uh, it's pretty certain that he will get it. So that would certainly affect your life and your outlook on things. So um, fortunately, being a Melungeon isn't anywhere near as devastating as, as a diagnosis of Huntington's disease, but it does uh, uh, affect you know your image of yourself and mm-hmm. uh, you know how you how you see yourself. So uh, that's 
that's really what the, the book and the article are about. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Wayne Winkler, who is the general manager of WETS, uh, the station where this show is produced. And uh, he's featured in the December uh, 2014 Psychology Today based on uh, his conversations and his work uh, with his own genealogy, with your own uh, ancestry uh, as a Melungeon. And, you, of course, you wrote the book Walking Toward the Sunset, uh, The Melungeons of Appalachia in 2004. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what that process was like of yourself your self-discovery of of uh, your melungeon ancestry certainly um i really first learned of of this when i was about uh, 12 years old uh it was in uh, 1968 and i was visiting my uh, grandmother's house in hancock county which is considered kind of the ground zero of the mm-hmm. melungeons it's the place most uh, associated with the melungeons and I was reading a newspaper article about uh, plans for an outdoor drama about the Melungeons. And at that age, I thought I had a fairly good vocabulary, but I had never seen the word Melungeon before. And I found out that that was how people had described my family. And uh, I was trying to find out naturally uh, what a Melungeon is, and nobody really had a good answer. They're, mm-hmm. they're kind of of a mysterious background, uh, thought to be triracial, but there are all kinds of theories about where they came from, uh, different <clears throat> exotic notions about the, the past of the Melungeons. So uh, it began uh, a process of trying to do research, and I was you know, just a child at the time, so uh, fortunately my, uh, my aunt was a teacher like my mother is, and she was collecting different newspaper articles. So I had a little bit of a library, and then I started uh, finding uh, books like uh, Bruton Berry's 1963 book, Almost White, and it's about mixed ethnic populations in the southeastern United States. And uh, I, I found other articles, old articles from the 19th century and things like that, but uh, interest in the Melungeons really built up in the uh, mid-1990s when Brent Kennedy's book, uh, The Melungeons, The Resurrection mm. of a Proud People, was released. And that kind of coincided with the spread of the Internet to uh, just ordinary people. And discussion groups built up around uh, discuss- discussing the book and discussing the Melungeons. And I wound up doing a, a radio documentary that was carried by a number of public radio stations around the country. And in doing that, I realized I had, hadn't had really delved into the topic as much as I wanted to. And I thought what I would like to do is write a book that is objective, not trying to promote any particular theory, a book that was comprehensive, looking at everything that had been mm-hmm. written about the uh, Melungeons and would be a bestseller. And I had to settle for two uh, out of three. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I was I was pleased with the book. I, what I wanted yeah. was a book that could serve as a textbook. If somebody did a class on mixed ethnic people, that this would be a book that was complete enough and objective enough to be a textbook. And I was very flattered when Elon University uh, conducted a class on mixed ethnic populations and used it for a textbook. Uh, and I was pleased, you know, not just because the students were required to buy the book, but also because it showed that I had achieved that, that uh, it, was a, it was a book worthy of being a textbook. Yeah, and, and, and of course your, your book uh, is about the Melungeons and that particular history, but it's also a critique, well, it's a commentary, a book also about race and the social construct of race. 
Yes. Uh, because yeah. that's really kind of a big part of what I was reading um, your book, thinking about, you know, Melungeons, well, do they self-identify as Melungeons? Is there something that's... When you wrote a line in there, when, when you leave, when you go to Detroit, as your family did, are you a Melungeon anymore? I mean, is a Melungeon identified in a sense of what other people say about you? I mean, it had a whole social stigma to it as well. Right. Uh, in the 1950s, Edward Price wrote, there is no group of people anywhere who identify themselves as Melungeons. It was yeah. a name that other people called you or called your family. And it had a... a a connotation that meant more than your ethnic background. It was a soci- it was a a comment on your socioeconomic status. Uh, mm-hmm. If you called somebody a Melungeon, it not only meant that they were of mixed ethnic background, but they were also of a lower class, uh, not not ambitious, not educated, uh, you know, poor, but also content to be that way. The kind of low down and. Uh, so it, it was a very pejorative term. The term has changed over the years, and I think it was due to uh, a couple of factors. One was the outdoor drama in the uh, 1960s and 1970s that uh, kind of made people aware of uh, Melungeon Pride, uh, which was a concept that didn't even exist before the outdoor and, drama. And, and that drama was the name of your book? Uh, it was called Walk Toward the Sunset, Walk so I, okay. I sort of mm-hmm. adapted it for the title of my book. Yeah. But I think another factor was the uh, the Presbyterian mission that mm-hmm. uh, existed in Hancock County in uh, Blackwater Valley, or as it's now known, Vardy Valley, named after Vardaman Collins, who was uh, one of the Melungeon patriarchs. Uh, the Presbyterians came in about 1900 as part of their overall mission effort in southern Appalachia. Uh, if anyone read the book Christie or saw the TV series, that was part okay. of the uh, Northern Presbyterian wow. Church outreach into uh, Appalachia. And they came into Hancock County in about 1900 and established not only a church, but a school. At that time, Melungeons were not permitted to go to public schools uh, in Hancock County. So the Presbyterians built a school that was better than any of the public schools for miles and miles around. It was a three-story building, had nearly 100 windows uh, for light and ventilation, and a very progressive approach to education. They had individualized curriculum for each student. A student might Hmm. be at uh, uh, fourth grade level in reading, but only second grade level in arithmetic. So they adapted the curriculum for each individual student. They also had things like vocational education. They had uh, adult education. They had a hot lunch program long before anybody in Tennessee had that. Hmm. Uh, They had um, uh, various things that uh, attracted the attention of educators throughout the Southeast. And there were buses of educators coming into uh, into the valley to see how they were doing this. Uh, They also provided medical care. The uh, uh, nurse, Mary Rankin, uh, who was there for about 30-odd years, uh, delivered most of the babies in the area. Uh, She had gone to Johns Hopkins University. uh, After she had already gotten a master's degree from Columbia, she went to Johns Hopkins to learn about public health and how to uh, treat rural populations. Uh, She went back a few years later not to learn but to teach. They had asked her to come back Mm. and uh, pass on some of her experience. So uh, I think the big effect, though, that the the mission school there had 
was to give people a sense of Mm -hmm. self-worth. They did not use the term Melungeon because it was considered insulting, but they just treated everybody as somebody who had potential and had worth. Uh, The school only went to eighth grade, but if someone wanted to go further, they could go to Warren Wilson College in North Carolina or Berea College in Kentucky, finish their high school classes, and take college classes. So by the 1960s, you had a group of college-educated Melungeons, many of whom had left the area, but some of whom came back to Hancock County and provided a kind of a core of county leaders who were behind the outdoor drama and really kind of changed what it meant to be a Melungeon. It wasn't an insult anymore. It was something about who you were, and that was really when people started identifying themselves as Melungeons. They took the word, it's like somebody was calling you a nasty name that you always hated, but instead of rejecting it, you put it on your T-shirt and proudly wear it and say, yes, that's who I am. It's kind of like queer is used today in some some respects. Right, very very much so. So, uh, well, well, good kudos to the Presbyterians. And so they they came in, and and so they didn't necessarily establish a Melungeon school, but they knew that population was uh, discriminated against. That's that's correct. And uh, they... uh, they were uh, open to everyone who wanted yeah. to come, and uh, they uh, had students walking about, I don't know, four, the Virginia state line was about four miles away from where the school was, and they had students walking from Lee County, Virginia, uh, down a dirt road uh, in order to attend school there. So it was, uh, it was a great draw. They managed to resist being taken over by the county until uh, the Reverend Leonard finally retired they really wouldn't let him retire for a long time he tried <laughs> once like 30 they, 30 more years yeah, 30 or more years yeah they there. brought him yeah. back uh, but in the 1950s uh the school f- was finally taken into uh, county uh, control and it closed permanently in the early 1970s because of a lack of students on the north side of newman's ridge where the valley was mm. uh hancock county itself lost more than half its population in the 20th century due to out-migration, people moving away for better economic opportunities. So the school closed. Uh, It no longer exists, but if you go to to the valley, if you go to Vardy Valley in Hancock County, there is a museum uh, operated by the Vardy Community Historical Society. The old church is now a museum, Mm -hmm. and across the road they have moved the cabin of Mahala Mullins, which is pictured on the front of my book, she was sort of a matriarch uh, among the Melungeons, legendary uh, as a, a moonshiner, moonshiner but uh, she she was also a very large woman, and there were stories about her, most of which were hyperbole, but uh, the real story of Mahala Mullins is is quite fascinating as well, but uh, her cabin is, is now preserved, it's been restored, and people can go through there and look at it, and it's... Uh, yeah, it's open. The uh, museum and cabin are open every weekend during the summer and during uh, other months by appointment. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's worth a trip to Hancock County to see. Yeah, did your dad go to uh, the Vardy School? No, they lived elsewhere in the county. Okay. And uh, in in those days, I know his older brothers went to a um, a little one-room schoolhouse that was, I guess, set up for Melungeons. Uh, they didn't go to the public school, but by the time my dad came up, they no longer really had that segregation, and it's, mm. it's sort of vague as to when they 
they dropped that, but uh, certainly by World War II, uh, that was no longer the case. Uh, people who were drafted from Hancock County who were Melungeon were listed as white because the military was segregated and the community didn't want to send their people, even if they looked down on them, they didn't want to send them to fight in the war and be discriminated against. So they, mm. they, many of them had to go with affidavits from the county that this is a, uh, a resident of the county, certified healthy and uh, considered white. That was on the, uh, mm. the affidavits. So... Uh, but they also had a little better transportation. Uh, by the time my dad was uh, going to school, there was a, you know, a bus that would come around. You only had to walk three miles to catch the bus yeah. <laughs> to go into town. So uh, it was uh, the the uh, the situation changed a little bit. But uh, there were members of my family who did experience uh, going to segregated schools. Yeah. So and your father um, identified as, as Native American. Well, or, or did, how was that? Well, he would just say we, you know, if, uh, it, you know, when you're, when you're in grammar school, uh, teachers will say, find out from your family, you know, what your background is. Oh, okay. okay. I'm German and I'm, I'm Polish. I'm, I'm Lithuanian. And my dad said, well, our people are a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Some kind of, a lot of it in, in, is Indian. And later I asked him, uh, why did you, why would you always say Indian, uh, which was, it was part of our background, but I said, why didn't you ever say Melungeon? He said, because people know what an Indian is. You don't have to explain it. It takes all day to explain what a Melungeon is. So <laughs> it was just easier. But uh, I think that uh, he didn't have any, any problem with the, with the label. It was just a matter of convenience. Uh, when, uh, when I was growing up, nobody in in the north nobody you know north of the ohio river had ever heard of melungeons mm -hmm. so when i was in school and did a paper on melungeons uh i got called into the teacher's office after class and I thought, oh what have i done now uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, she gives me the paper with an a and wants to know more about the melungeons sure. and i thought i'm onto something here and so <laughs> i wrote that paper several times uh, throughout my school career always got an a on it so that's that's what makes a Melungeon researcher. You get that positive feedback. Right. And you've written, you wrote the book uh, Walking Toward the Sunset in 2004 and 2014. Uh, have you learned anything new uh, significantly since that book was written about the history of the Melungeons? I have learned, uh, for example, the word Melungeon was used quite, uh, quite a lot in the 19th century as a political term. It was a, hmm. a political insult that opposing... Okay parties would use for each other and it had a racial ep it was sort of a racial epithet but it wasn't meant literally uh, because obviously an office holder would not have been of mixed ancestry but it was a way of insulting another politician and we see several examples of that both before and after the civil war and what i find interesting is that in newspaper articles they were using this word with no explanation uh, when i studied uh, journalism uh, starting in high school, they told us we were writing for people with an average sixth grade reading level, that mm -hmm. uh, you had to write clearly and plainly enough that a, a sixth grader could understand it. So uh, it, it, I, I found it very interesting that the word melungeon was being used in a way that it was assumed people would know what they were talking about because... In the 20th century, the word seems to be completely mysterious. It doesn't bring up a connotation to people 
outside the areas where Melungeons live. So uh, I, I found that very interesting. I find uh, uh, the, uh, the socioeconomic aspect of the term has become a little bit more clear to me since I wrote it. And um, you know, I, I, still, I still have pretty much the same idea about the Melungeons' ethnic background that I had then and didn't really express uh, as, as because I didn't want to, uh, to express a lot of my own opinion in this. I wanted it to mm. be a history book. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the last chapter, I kind of deal with some of the theories, uh, the pros and cons of the theories. But overall, uh, I, I felt from the very beginning that the Melungeons did not have the exotic... Uh, background that some people were trying to attribute, and by exotic I mean, you know, mysterious people from Phoenicia like from, from or Asia, yeah, or something you know, like yeah, uh, okay. all that. I, I think the it lost was, tribes uh, of Israel was one. Of right, <laughs> yeah, I think I think it was basically a, a mixture of uh, you know uh, African Americans, probably not slaves, but free African Americans uh, from the very first slaves in this country yeah. were enslaved for a short period of time, indentured servitude. Uh, mm-hmm. Lifelong slavery came along later, but there was a large free African-American population, and I think that was kind of the root of the Melungeons. Is there, is there any kind of Melungeon culture, uh, songs, stories particularly, that you would identify as Melungeon? Uh, no, actually, I, as I was explaining to somebody recently, uh, I think the, the Melungeons were doing their best to assimilate, uh, okay. and I, I have yet to identify any particular cultural uh, uh, aspects that I can ascribe exclusively to the Melungeons. One thing, though, uh, that I could say uh, is a cultural thing that maybe the Melungeons didn't bring with them but helped create was uh, bluegrass music. There are many, many of the pioneers of bluegrass music do share the... uh, heritage of Melungeons. Uh, people uh, like uh, uh, Mac Wiseman, for example, okay. uh, was uh, he's one who's been uh, very, very vocal about his, uh, his Melungeon ancestry. And of course, uh, my dad's cousin, Jimmy Martin, the king of bluegrass mm. from Hancock County, uh, was never invited to join the Grand Ole Opry because he could not keep his mouth shut about what he thought of people, especially when <laughs> drinking. But he was uh, he was cons- he worked with Bill Monroe, and he worked with the Osborne brothers. He lived in Detroit uh, the time I was a baby, uh, so uh, he was a frequent visitor at our house. Not that I remember it, but uh, yeah. he was uh, he was uh, one of the uh, early. Uh, practitioners of bluegrass and many other uh, many other people who were in uh, the beginnings of bluegrass have acknowledged uh, or speculated that they might have some Melungeon heritage. So I don't know if it has anything to do with them being Melungeon, but it's something that, that we'll claim, and we'll certainly claim Jimmy Martin. <laughs> <laughs> well, just one, we have just about 30 seconds left, but just a personal question. Uh, what does it mean to you to have done this research to, to identify with this Melungeon heritage? I think uh, people always like to find a little bit about where they come from, who, mm-hmm. who their people were. Also, when you have children of your own, you want to be able to pass mm-hmm. down a little something uh, as to who they are. But I, I, I've always been interested in the lives of, uh, of people. That's always been my history interest is you know the lives of ordinary people, not the presidents and generals and such, but how ordinary people lived. And I'd like to ha- I'd like to learn about that and pass that on to my own children.
Wayne, thanks for being with me today. Wayne Winkler, general manager at WETS. Uh, a chapter about him in a new book called The Invisible History of the Human Race, How DNA and History Shape Our Identities and Our Futures. Christine Keneally, the author of that, and a chapter of that in the December 2014 issue of Psychology Today uh, with, with Wayne's picture there. And also, Wayne, of course, the author of Walking Toward the Sunset, The Melungeons of Appalachia. Thanks again for being with me today. Thanks very much for having me. If you would like a podcast of this show or any program, go to religionforlife.com. I'm John Schack. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, listen to us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC, Emory, Virginia. Be welcome.